0: Section 25 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 19. Extension of Plebeian Rites from 449 to 390 BC, Part 2. Nevertheless, there are indications of very severe struggles during this period, it seems that the patricians did not scruple to resort to violent measures when opposed by plebeian candidates of more than average ability or determination. On such occasions they did not shrink even from murder, as we learn from the fate of Spurius Milius. Ten years after the Decemvirate, in 439 BC, dearth and famine desolated the land. The people suffered grievously, though a special commissioner of markets, Praefectus Annoni, was appointed to buy up corn for the supply of the people. In this emergency, Spurius Milius, a rich plebeian, came forward as a benefactor of the poor, distributed corn gratis, or at very low prices, and made himself so popular that the people appeared inclined to raise him to the consulship if he desired that honor. The patricians suspected him of even greater ambition. At least they pretended to fear that he was planning the overthrow of the republic and the establishment of a monarchy. Upon information given by the Commissioner of Markets, that secret meetings were held at the house of Maelius, and that arms were being collected, a dictator was appointed as in times of imminent danger to save the Republic. Cincinnatus, the conqueror of the Icaeans, was the man selected. He set up his tribunal in the Forum and sent Servilius Ahala, his master of the horse, to summon Maelius before him. Milius, foreseeing the danger which threatened him, implored the protection of the people, whereupon Ahala drew a dagger and stabbed him to death, and Cincinnatus, as dictator, justified the deed. The people were terrified and cowed for the moment, but they soon recovered confidence, and Servilius Ahala was driven into exile and his property confiscated. The violent proceeding against such a popular man as Spurius Milius was perhaps not isolated. It shows that party spirit ran high in Rome at this time, and that the patricians were still strong enough to thwart the endeavors of the plebeians and to keep them out of offices which they had a legal right to hold. Meanwhile, an important modification was made in the organization of the government by the creation of the censorship in 443 B.C., from the first establishment of the Comitia Centuriata, it had been necessary to classify the citizens of Rome according to their property. The assessments necessary for this purpose were made by the chief magistrates from time to time, as necessity or expediency seemed to require. It is probable that these duties were imperfectly discharged by the consuls, who had so much other work on hand and that the census which ought to have taken place at regular periods was often postponed under the pressure of war or internal disputes. It was but natural that with an increasing tendency to organize the different branches of the administration as separate magistracies, the duties of the censorship should at last be assigned to an officer elected for that special purpose, just as the quaestorship and afterwards the praetorship were established as distinct from the consulship. The establishment of the censorship in 443 BC is only one feature of that general tendency to multiply magistracies by which the simplicity of the original republic was expanded into the elaborate organization of a more advanced period. Why the year 443 was chosen for the creation of the censorship is not recorded, but probably we shall not err if we look upon the reform as a result of the changes consequent upon the decemviral legislation and in particular of the law which substituted military tribunes, eligible from patricians and plebeians alike, for the original patrician consuls. The patricians naturally wished to keep the management of public affairs as much as possible in their own hands, and they reserved to their own order the eligibility to the new office of Kensor. They succeeded in keeping exclusive possession of it for nearly 100 years, in 351 BC, the first plebeian censor was elected, and not until 339 BC was a formal law passed to secure the regular election of one plebeian to the office. In creating the new office of censors, the Romans followed the practice established for the consuls and quaestors of electing not one but two magistrates to act as colleagues. The motive must have been, as in the older case, wish to allow one censor by his intercession to control the action of the other, a motive amply justified by experience. As the census could not be taken every year, the censorship differed from the other republican offices in point of duration. It was made to extend over five years, the intention being that once in that period which, from the religious ceremony of lustration, that is, purification of the people, the Romans called a lustrum, a new valuation of property should take place, and that every Roman citizen should have the place assigned according to which he had to vote and to contribute to the burdens of the state. The lists of citizens drawn up by the censors thus became the authentic registers recognized by the state. No man could claim the rights of a Roman citizen whose name was not on their lists, and the constitutional privileges possessed by Roman magistrates were such that on the occasion of the census, the censors, acting with a discretion almost despotic, were allowed to transfer citizens to other classes or tribes, and even to exclude them altogether, and to admit freedmen to the rank of citizens. In fact, to remodel the community, to alter even the principles on which the census was based, and thus to adapt the old institutions to the varying conditions of the times. It was natural that the original sums fixed— As the census of different classes should not remain a correct standard for a long period, and that the mode of assessment had to be modified as the habits of life and the views held on the value of personal or real property were changed. Thus, the censors were, in point of fact, the agents for periodical reforms, and prevented the necessity of a sweeping reform bill, such as that which was passed in England in 1832 to reconcile the principle of representation which suited the 15th century to the altered economical and social conditions of the 19th. But the censors were not confined to drawing up the lists of private citizens alone. A duty if not more important, certainly more calculated to give them weight with the nobility, was the periodical renewal of the Senate. The members of that body, as we have seen, were not elected by the people, like those of the House of Commons, nor were they hereditary, like those of the House of Lords. They were nominated by the executive, that is, by the kings in the early period, which we call regal, and by the consuls after the establishment of the Republic. Upon the establishment of the censorship, this nomination was made to devolve on the Kensors. They had to draw up a list of the senators, and it was left to their discretion to add new members in the place of those deceased, and also to strike out the names of men whom they considered unworthy of the great honor and responsibility of a seat in that august assembly. As a rule, the senators were nominated for life, but the law, by sanctioning a periodical revision of the senatorial list, enabled the Kensors to exclude men notoriously unworthy. If this important duty had been exercised in a reckless party spirit, so that the Kensors had ejected the members of what we should call the opposition— The Roman Senate would inevitably have lost that character of a fixed and settled institution which enabled it in the good old times to control all parties and to direct the public policy with a view only to the national interest. Every election of censors would have become a test of the strength of parties, and the victorious party would each time have excluded its opponents from a share in the government. A periodical oscillation would have been the result in the policy of Rome, such as we are accustomed to see in modern constitutional governments. But the evils of such an oscillation would have been much greater in Rome than they are in a state where the crown represents the permanent national interests which are above the interests of conflicting parties. Besides the general list of Roman citizens and the list of senators, the censors had to draw up a list of the knights, the Centuries of Knights formed a part of that organization known as the Constitution of Centuries generally attributed to Servius Tullius. Originally, the Centuries of Knights or Horsemen, eighteen in number, were intended to contain the young men fit for cavalry service in the army, and the cavalry of the legions continued to be made up chiefly of the men thus selected by the Kensors. But as the assembly of centuries gradually lost its military character and became a purely political body, the centuries of knights assumed more and more the character of a select body of citizens, distinct from the great mass by wealth and connection. Knighthood began to be looked upon as a preliminary stage to the senatorial rank and as constituting an intermediate class. It comprised the young men of the noble houses, though as far as we know, no property qualification was exacted for membership before the time of the Gracchi. It was more and more considered an honor to belong to the centuries of knights, and as they counted eighteen votes in the conturiate assembly and also enjoyed the right of voting before the others, they possessed great influence. Hence older men who had served their time in the army and even senators found it desirable to retain their votes in the centuries of knights and the censorial discretion in drawing up these lists was one of great importance. From the exercise of these rights, the censors acquired in course of time a power much coveted and highly valued, the power of sitting in judgment on the civic virtue of all Roman citizens, of punishing misconduct by exclusion from public rights and honors. They acquired what was called the censura morum, the censorship of morals, which supplied a defect in the code of laws, and in that code of public decency and social propriety, which in our own time is successfully enforced by public opinion aided by the press. As the full exercise of this moral judicature of the censors belongs to a later period, we need not here dwell upon it any longer. In the censorial functions of classifying the citizens according to their property was contained the germ of their financial duties. They obtained, in course of time, the control of the public income and expenditure, especially with regard to the revenue from domain lands and to the outlay on public works. The full development of these financial duties, however, belongs to a later period. When the censorship had been tried for two lustral periods, it was found necessary in 434 BC to modify the tenure of office and to limit its duration to one year and a half, but probably The motive for this change was not the wish to limit the legitimate power and authority of the office. It is quite evident that such a process as a census ought always to be accomplished in the shortest possible period. If the censors took full five years before they completed their lists of citizens, knights, and senators, and assessed the property of each, they not only held the whole community in suspense for all this long period and thereby produced a feeling of insecurity— but they ran the risk of publishing statistical data not in accordance with actual facts. In the year 421, the principle of multiplying the number of chief magistrates in the interest of the public service and in that of the plebeians received a further illustration by the doubling of the number of quaestors. It was arranged that both patricians and plebeians should be eligible. No doubt the patricians expected to get their own candidates elected as regularly for this office as for the military tribuneship. But in this expectation, they were deceived. The election took place, not like that of military tribunes and consuls in the assemblies of centuries, but in that of the tribes, and in these, patricians had not the same influence as in the other assembly. Consequently, we find that as early as 410 BC, three quaestors out of four were plebeians. This was the first triumph of the plebeians. Soon after, in 400, 399, and 396 B.C., they carried the election of several plebeian military tribunes, and thus, for the first time, realized the privilege which they had won about half a century before. They never again lost the ground thus gained, and in less than ten years more, in 388 B.C., they reached at last the long-desired end of political equality by the Licinian laws which gave them a share in the consulship. However, before this great constitutional change took place, the Commonwealth of Rome passed through a series of dangers from foreign enemies, which more than any internal disturbances threatened it with dissolution. End of section 25.